I recently got my hands on some really compelling data. Uh, and here, here's the thing, organizations that have made the switch to fundraises, digital fundraising platform, are seeing average online revenue growth of 77%. Now, that number is really staggering. But at the same time, you know, knowing the fundraise solution, it's also completely believable for me. I've been in this game for 25 years helping nonprofits uh, grow and, and identify ways to level up their, their fundraising. And regularly, uh, I find myself referring uh, charities and ministries that are looking for ways to speed up their growth, to streamline processes, and to create a better experience for donors online um, over to my friends at Fundraise. So I recommend that you talk to Fundraise today to see how your organization can grow uh, with Fundraise. And you can, you can reach them at fundraise, F-U-N-R-A-I-S-E dot org. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, your home for all things fundraising and nonprofit leadership. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I've got a favor to ask. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate the show and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people and make a bigger impact in the world. So thank you in advance for doing that. Now let's get into today's episode. Hey everybody, this is Andrew Olson. I'm I'm excited to be here today with a good friend of mine. We are here today talking with Major Nurson Kiston from the Salvation Army, Orange County in California. Uh, Major Kiston, how are you today? Andrew, I am doing fabulously well. I mean, just enjoying life and living the dream. I love that. Um, so we're going to talk today about culture and leadership and talent. Before we get into that, though, I would love for you to just uh, share a little bit with our audience about yourself um, and about the Salvation Army and the work that you're doing there. Okay. Well, you know, Andrew, I'm a complicated beast, as they say. I was born in South Africa, uh, in apartheid South Africa, migrated with my family to Australia when I was eight years of age, lived in Australia, fell in love with the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army is one of these incredible mission movements that uh, helps people in all parts of their lives. And, you know, uh, my life was touched by it in a personal way. And now I am a Salvation Army officer. Salvation Army, Andrew, as you know, is in 134 countries across the world. So it's global. Started with William and Catherine Booth in 1865. It loves people. It's a Christian mission movement that wants to change people's lives. Awesome. Yeah, I, you you know this as well uh, about me, but you know, my my own family was impacted by the Salvation Army. My mom, as a child, um, used to go to Salvation Army summer camp in Chicago and uh, still to this day talks about that being some of the best experiences she ever had as a child. So um, very excited to have this conversation with you and, and to continue to engage with with you and, and our friends uh, all across the Salvation Army. Let's jump right in. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit. Uh, let's start with culture. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, some of the biggest challenges you see facing our nonprofit sector when it comes to creating and cultivating a healthy culture in an organization. Well, I, I think one of the things is culture is one of those things that actually uh, is experienced, not just spoken. And uh, <laughs> one of the challenges is for most nonprofits, we're so preoccupied with doing the very every, everyday challenges of life. The culture falls off our radar. We don't invest in it. Um, but I realized very early on in leadership in this nonprofit organization called the Salvation Army, our culture is our competitive edge. 
if we don't invest in our cold chain in the cultivating of it and in the growing of it, we leave ourselves at a significant disadvantage. I can't compete with my for-profits in terms of finances and monetary giving to my staff. Do you know where I can win? I can win in culture. So uh, mm. I invest a significant amount of my time and energy in creating healthy culture within my organizational space and sphere of influence. So I, I think when, when people hear that, uh, and, and even just the general talk about culture, you know, I, I think just knowing you, you and I kind of have a similar perspective on what culture is and what it's not. Um, but I'm not sure that everybody else really understands that. Could you, could you expand a little bit on just, you know, when you think about what are the hallmarks of a good, healthy, thriving culture in an organization, what are some of the things that you think are most important to that? Well, one of the most important things is uh, people spend a vast majority of their time working a lot in their work space. So how do we create a space where people actually can feel valued? How do they feel as if that they're important, significant to our organization? And they don't just, they're just not a number. They're just not a work product. They're actually a person that we value them. Show them that they're valued. How do we actually empower people so that their creative, uh, weird, uh, audacious ideas can actually be given uh, freedom of expression? How do we help people feel empowered to grow and delve as their own person delves and grows? How do we actually help uh, help people realize that uh, the potential within them is actually untapped and we need to help bring that out? So the whole process of how we deal with people and how we develop a culture that says we're permission giving, we're empowering, uh, we allow people to risk and fail and mistakes are acceptable and we want you to learn from them. How do we actually help people become, you know, where they feel loved, they feel genuinely important to the organization and that they matter. So there's a number of elements like that that we as an organization, you know, in Orange County Salvation Army, invest in our people. I consider this a primary responsibility of me as the leader of the organization. It, in fact, my number one priority. Building culture in my organization is my number one priority. In fact, I can't delegate it. I can't hand it off to anyone. I actually have to take it, take it on board. And here's how it plays out for me. It plays out in terms of staff retention. So I look at my retention levels as an organizational every week so in my executive meeting with my staff i say how many people feel as if they are valued enough important enough encouraged enough empowered enough because people don't leave organizations they leave leaders so i hold my leaders accountable to how we are creating a culture that is healthy that is flourishing that is nurturing that is life-giving and how do we do that and so retention i look at we do stay interviews. I, I want to make sure I ask people the question, why do you stay with us organizationally? Every year, as part of my annual review, why do you stay with this company? What is keeping you with us? What do you love about us? What don't you love about us? What do you love about the mission? What don't you love about the mission? What do you love about your boss? And what don't you love about your boss? Now, they're hard questions. And not everyone wants to hear it because it's not always good. But I think... We as an organization uh, invest in that significantly. So I love that. I, I'm curious, a lot of leaders that I run across, particularly in our sector, and, and you alluded to this, you know, don't really want to hear some of these responses, right? Because 
maybe we've not always played, you know, played the culture card well, right? And and not always um, done the hard things that are required for people to really feel um, loved and cared for in our organization. What um, what are some of the things that that you you know encouragement you'd give to other leaders who who maybe say you know I don't really want to bring up this culture thing because deep down I know that I've I've not maybe done it as well as I should have like what what are some maybe not easy but simple ways that leaders can start to lean into this. Well, I, I think you do the cost-benefit analysis. As every leader, one of the biggest things that drives every organization and it's on everyone's agenda is the bottom line. Fiscally, <laughs> can I afford not to th- do this? And I would say to most leaders, fiscally, you can't afford not to focus your energy on culture. If you're losing staff at a disproportional rate, what you are doing is not just losing intellectual uh, uh, know-how and intellectual uh, capacity. What you lose, what you are doing, is you're costing your organization a huge amount of money. Training <laughs> staff really can kill an organization, and it can kill your bottom line in ways you can't even imagine. And in the nonprofit world, we cannot afford to continually invest in retraining, in building up people's capacity to understand our organization our organizational nuances and language and rhythms and systems, which is kind of afford So any CEO or organizational leader, I'm saying to you today, if you're not actually saying, hey, yeah, it'll make it uncomfortable. And let's be honest, for the first three years I was, or the first even 12 to 18 months I was in my current role, it wasn't pretty. Uh, <laughs> I was losing style. Um, my bottom line was going south fast i was in a four million dollar deficit hole um my people they were here but i don't think half of them really wanted to be here and Mm. so i had to do the evaluation the hard evaluation of working out what's going on and the first thing i realized when i started interviewing staff and having staff roundtables i realized very quickly we had some major major problems organizationally that needed to be addressed. And it wasn't just, hey, improve this element of your organization, improve your services, provide better qualities. It, it was had nothing to do with any of that. It actually had to do with how my staff was being trained, equipped, empowered, and growing. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious, you know, we over the last couple of years, there've been so many changes in the workforce because of the pandemic and because of what's going on in the economy. And, you know, I, I hear a lot about um, leaders being concerned with, you know, how, how sort of the, the younger generation of, of employees, um, what their expectations are, and just some of the, the change in expectations even over the last couple of years because of what's going on in the, in the world. Um, how much does that play a part in in you know your your current culture work and and is that something you're concerned about? Are you excited about the changes that you're seeing in the workforce? Like, what, give me a read on that. Well, here's what I'm saying. From my perspective, it absolutely excites me that there is challenges in the workplace. I tell you why. It actually means that if you, as an organization leader, has focused and put the energy and time in building good foundations regarding culture, work ethic, all of those elements, you're actually thriving in this space. 
I can tell you my retention level on executive and high mid-level staff is 90%. I'm not wow. losing staff. In fact, I have more staff coming from other organizations that want to work for us that are knocking on the door saying, do you have openings? It is the most exciting place to be. And it, it's not. And I, I don't want to pat myself on the back and be too proud right now. But what I can say is, I realized by fortune of circumstances five and a half years ago that I had to actually do the hard lifting. Mm -hmm. And because of doing the hard lifting at that point in the journey, I'm not reaping the rewards at this point in the journey, five years into it, because I am not having a problem of staff retention. You know, let's be honest with each other. There's going to be ups and flows with entry-level positions, and that happens in every organization. But if my mid-level managers are just as effective in managing the culture as my senior-level executives, then I am actually at a huge advantage in the space. So I know the current trend is what it is, but we don't need to be impacted by the trends if we actually do the foundational work well. And my experience is mm -hmm. we're not inoculated to it, but we're not experiencing it anywhere near the same levels as some of my, uh, my colleagues are in other industries. Yeah, I love to hear that. That's great. Um, okay, so I, I want to go in a little bit different direction now. One of the other sure. things that, that I see, particularly with, with younger staff, but not always, right, um, is, is there, there's in many organizations, there's sort of this... Um, this mindset of, you know, I'll be here, I'll punch the clock and uh, I'll, I'll do what I need to, to get the job done daily, you know, on a daily basis, but I'm not going to invest more in, in my work. And, you know, from, from where I sit, I, I always try in the hiring process, you know, I'm looking for people who have an ownership mindset, right. Who, you know, regardless of what role they're going to play in the organization, that they look at their role and they say, I am responsible and accountable for this, and I'm going to do my best to deliver these results, right? Uh, talk a little bit about how you navigate that area and, you know, what role or, or does it play a part in your hiring strategy? And, and how are you training and equipping your team to, to really take ownership of what they're responsible for instead of just being a, you know, uh, a, a clock puncher, if you will? That's a great question. Um... I don't think there's a simple answer to that question because I think uh, one of the challenges is of hiring well. I mean, we have a philosophy around our, our, our space here is uh, hire hard, manage easy. Uh, I think <laughs> uh, we don't hire hard enough. Uh, we, I, I think there's a couple of things, a simple process of just doing, uh, getting your resumes and interviewing. I don't see that process working really well in this day and age because I don't think you get an accurate gauge of who people are. So we hire really hard. There could be three or four rounds of interviews. I mean, places like Disney, they just smashed us out of the park because, no pun intended, because one of the things they try and do very hard is they want people to understand their DNA and they want people mm -hmm. to understand the Disney philosophy, the happiest place on, on earth. Uh, and, and it is such a, a phenomenal way in which they approach hiring and they approach recruitment and leadership development and growth. And so we really try to glean from some organizations like that. So our hiring process, we really have the four C's. So we hire people on character, competency, 
chemistry, uh, and capacity. So, of course, if people have the wrong character uh, ethically, well, then they're never going to be a fit in our organization. If they don't have the right chemistry, if they don't get along with their peers, and we can see evidence of them actually having a, a being able to bond with people, well, they're not the right. And then if they don't have a, a capacity, they don't have the, the, the ability to grow with us organizationally, then we're going to hit limits and where they, they just weren't journey with us. And if they're not competent, you, I think you can train some people in some areas, but we've got to move away from the philosophy. Just because we're a nonprofit, it doesn't mean we'll just take any living body that's got blood pumping through their veins. Uh, we need to have people that have actually a desire. And I find that younger people actually are more committed than older people. And I'll tell you why I find I think younger people are attracted to a different storyline. And as an organization, mm -hmm. I think we've got to learn how to adapt to the changing world that we're living in. And younger people want a cause that they will die for. They just don't want a job. I mean, they're tired of just ticking the boxes. They're tired of just playing to the rhythm of everyone else. They really want something that is worth fighting for. And I think a lot of nonprofits have really good causes, which captures not just people's minds, but their hearts. So I want to capture not only just your mind and your intellect and your ability, I want to capture your heart. And if I capture your heart, then I've got you forever. Because if you don't see this as a job, but you see this as a way of life, if you don't see this mm -hmm. as a job or a task or a chore, you see this as something life-giving, then younger people are all in 100%. So my job as a leader and my executive leadership is go, how do we help people? How do we unlock people's hearts to our mission and to what we're trying to achieve and accomplish? Yeah, I love that. And and I think you're right. You know, we see it on the, on the other side, not with, well, I, I see it personally with employees, but we see it with like donors, right? Even today, the, the younger the donor, the more they want to affiliate with the cause and with the vision and mission yes. versus just saying, I give to this organization because they're a trusted organization. And so I, I can imagine it's much more so for someone who's an employee who's going to show up every day and be in it with you, you know, eight hours a day, 12 hours a day, whatever it might take. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Andrew, here's the biggest challenge for an organization like the Salvation Army, right? Two things we like to tell everyone. One is we are the most recognizable brand in the world, and we're probably in the top five. <laughs> and two is we're the most trusted brand in the world, and we're probably in the top five of that as well. And I think there's surveys and research that shows that we are. Here's a problem for us. As much as it is an advantage, it's also a disadvantage. Because our world at the moment, yeah, they may recognize your brand. They may trust your brand. But our world right now is not brand loyal. Yeah. The changing demographic uh, in the United States and even across the world is that actually, I actually don't care about the brand as much as I care about what it is that it is trying to accomplish. And they, we are seeing a world that is changing and is more cause-driven than brand-driven. And so one of the dangers for us in the nonprofit world is, yeah, we go, oh, look, we are a great brand. We're big. We've got a great brand strategy of brand marketing. But I want to say it's only part of the story. The rest of the story is equally important, if not more important for us right now. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I almost feel like we're in an age of like 
aggressive brand skepticism more than anything else. And, and so if you lean on just your brand, um, I, I can see how organizations would have trouble kind of, you know, a, across the spectrum around that. I, I'm curious, what are some of the ways, I mean, obviously, given the work that you do, there, there's, you know, for many of your employees, I, I assume there's the ability to be, you know, proximate with, with those you serve. And that's a great way for people to feel connected to the cause. What are some of the ways you foster and facilitate that with sort of like, quote unquote, like back office staff, people who maybe aren't out on the front lines engaging with um, the Salvation Army service recipients on a daily basis? How, how do you connect them closely and deeply to the mission? Well, it's one of the most important parts of what we do on a regular basis is telling our story. So, yes, we use our social media internally as well as externally to tell our staff the story that they are part of a bigger thing. Just because you work in the finance office and you are recording checks and receipts and all of the administrative part, but we, we communicate that they are part of the bigger picture. They are part of the transforming life story. So the mission of the Salvation Army here in Orange County is to transform lives with courage and innovation empowered by our holy faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what we are at our mission. And we communicate that mission in varying ways on a regular basis. So we have regular staff gatherings. Every month we gather as a staff. We do, we do this crazy thing every Wednesday for 30 minutes across the county. I've got nearly 200 staff. For 30 minutes, every staff department has a representative or several representatives that gather for 30 minutes where they take responsibility in retelling our story, where it's a human <laughs> traffic program lead, whether it's a homeless shelter guys, whether it's one of our family services, whatever it is you play in our organization, you tell us your story. We pray with you. We affirm you. We talk together, we fellowship together, we have community together. And by making that an intentional part of the rhythm of the organization, everyone feels connected. You're not disconnected. You know what's going on. You're hearing stories. You're having access to hearing the stories. Creating access points for us organizationally, as we get larger, we've got to be more intentional in being smaller. <laughs> As we get yeah. larger, we've got to be more intentional in how we communicate, how often we communicate. You know, they say, it's an old saying, it's true, but often we, we neglect it. Communication has to be intentional and it has to, we have to over-communicate. You can never under-communicate your story or the stories, and people love stories. So we do that um, in various forms, whether it's the Weekly Zoom, where it's a once a month touch base where people can come together, where it's an annual meeting where we get everyone and we do funny, crazy things. We give out awards. Uh, we recognize people. We um, celebrate. Uh, so, yeah, we're really intentional with a lot of that. And what I try to do is, is create key staff who have responsibilities to drive this. Now, mm. obviously, I can't delegate everything, but I have key people that drive these key initiatives so that we don't lose sight of them. That's awesome. All right. So you mentioned, you know, getting bigger and the, the you know, sort of the largeness of the organization. And, and one of the other things I wanted to, to touch on with you is, you know, as a leader in a highly matrixed global organization, you know, how, how do you, um, how do you lead effectively when you aren't always 
sort of the senior most decision maker in, in a conversation? Like, what does that look like? And what have you learned uh, that might be helpful to, to our listeners on that? So, so yes, you, 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 you typecast us beautifully, Andrew. Yes. <laughs> as a, as a, I, I might have been around the block with you all a bit, you know. Yes. We're hierarchical. We're more than 150 years old. Uh, you know, a lot of our leaders are very conservative thinkers. Uh, and not to say that in a bad way, but as you get larger as an organization, you're more risk averse. You realize that any decision or anything you do can cause the organization significant challenge, problem. And we just talked about the brand, the recognition. The last thing our organizational leaders want to do is impact our brand. And here am I, by very nature, I'm a disruptor. I'm a change agent. So how do I manage a disruptor, a change agent, in an organization that is risk adverse, that probably frowns upon disruptors? So I've had to learn how I actually understand who I am in the organization, understand how my organizational leaders operate, and learn how to bring wisdom, discernment, to how I manage that that's happening around. So I've got to lead up. One of the things is people are down on what they're not up on. So your leaders are naturally <laughs> down on something they're not up on. So if they don't know what you're doing or where you're going or how crazy it is, and they find out by a third party, now that can cause me some enormous trouble. So I learned early on in life where I made those fundamental mistakes. I didn't lead up well. I didn't tell my leaders on a more regular basis of what I'm doing. And it caused them some distress. And I realized that that was my issue and I had to work better at actually leading up in an organization that is hierarchical. So keeping them really well informed. The second thing I realized very quickly is I can't be what I'm not. If I'm a disruptor, I've got to keep on disrupting. If I'm a change agent, I've got to keep on. But I've got to do that with the wisdom of Solomon. I can't. I've got to realize that a bull in a china shop just doesn't work. So know which paddock that bull needs to be unleashed on and when I need to actually rein it in a bit. So learning when to rein it in and learning when to go full bolt is really an important rhythm in my organization I've had to learn and adapt to. I'd like to say that it is so critically important that you are an adaptive leader. If COVID has taught us anything, it's taught us that the leaders that have learned how to adapt in their context and circumstances are the leaders that have thrived and are still thriving. Leaders that were stuck and, and just remained linear in their approach are the ones that struggle. And in the Salvation Army, I've got to learn to adapt on a regular basis. I've got to under, understand how my leaders think and operate, and I've got to understand how I operate. And then this is the third part of the, the equation that I think I'm still learning to master. And so let me not fool your listeners to think, hey, this guy sounds great. He's got it all under control. Actually, no, it's not true. I'm actually learning it as I go along and learning to refine it. The third part of it is I've learned that where I make the biggest difference is actually not in the whole organization. The organization is global, as you said. So here's what I've learned a long time ago. No one can boil the ocean. And endeavoring to boil the ocean is actually going to lead to great frustration, disappointment, 
and eventually people leave and resign. I've got to learn to boil the kettle. And the kettle is actually in my own neighborhood and actually in my own household. So how can I bring about the changes and bring about the leadership shift that needs to happen in the Salvation Army in Orange County? And if I can do that well, then I've become a legacy builder rather than a kingdom builder for the entire Salvation Army. I love that, and I love how on-brand boiling the kettle sounds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that having had the benefit of, of working alongside you and, and watching you work uh, is understanding how much you use influence instead of authority. Could you talk a little bit about um, how you see the difference between those two things and, and how one has benefited you more than another? Yeah. Well, you know, John Maxwell is a guru about this, right? And if you've read John Maxwell, he will say to you, positional authorities is a level one leader. And level one leaders, yeah, you may have an authority and you may have a title and you may have a, you know, you have your name on the door, but that only gets you to open the door. It actually doesn't get you to actually lead anyone through the organization. So I don't have significant authority in the organization, but I learned what I do have is the ability to influence and learning how to lead from the second chair when you're not the key individual uh, on point is actually sometimes more powerful. Now, I don't know how many of you have watched uh, the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Have you, have you seen it? <laughs> Some of you may not have seen it. And there's a really, really funny scene when um, this young Greek young lady wants to go to further education and her father says, no, no, no. A good Greek girl has to get married and have children. That's your role and responsibility in life. It's your only role and responsibility. And Tula says to her mother, tears flowing, and she goes, Mother, my our father just doesn't understand the situation. And she goes, Tula, what you got to realize, your father may be the head, but I'm the neck. And whichever way the neck moves, so does the head. And I reckon that's a really great leadership parallel. You may not be the head, but you can move that head through influence. <laughs> you can move people with power of words, of language, of story. You can move people in ways in which you can stimulate their emotions and plant seeds in their minds that can shape your organization. And in fact, you can move your organization from the second, sheet, second seat sometimes far more effectively than if you're sitting in the head. I see often people that sit in the most seat of authority are just overwhelmed by mm. just the burden of that seat, of responsibility, of all that's going on. But those who sit in the second chair, you have the advantage of having more balcony space. You have the, the opportunity of being introspective and being philosophical and seeing sometimes what can be done in an organization because you're not really on the hot seat 24-7. And I think that's an advantage. And I use that and leverage that as best I can on every circumstance and opportunity. And to a large degree, with great effectiveness, because I've learned just because I don't have the authority should not be a disappointment storyline. But reframe that story and say, this is an opportunity to lead. I, I would agree. Uh, I, it has been fun to watch that. 
uh, in our interactions, and and I do think you do it very well. Thank you for uh, expounding on that. I, you know, you and I were talking before we came on uh, on screen today, um, jokingly about all of the running that you do, because I tell people I don't run unless people are chasing me, and and I'm kind of a tough guy, and people don't usually try to chase me. Um, <laughs> But you you actually uh, run quite a bit, and and I was um, I, I'm intrigued by sort of how you talk about it, improving your mental state and your your you know emotional state. And one of the things I was curious about is oftentimes you know guys in your seat flame out quickly, right? Because like you talked about, there's a lot of pressure. There's so many competing agendas. You're pulled in 52 different directions. You're worried about your team. You're worried about your revenue. You're worried about the people you serve. You're worried about legacy of all these different things. Um, talk about um, both your your you know exercise plan and other things that you do to stay both grounded and centered so that you can actually show up to do great work every day. You know, uh, a great leader once said that 50% of your time and energy as a leader needs to be on self-development. The other mm. 50% will take you far further than the 50% of your time that you've invested. So I recognized very early on in my leadership journey and trajectory that I had to really work on self. And, and I'll be honest with you, like most leaders, we sometimes think, we can just do it in our own strength and ability. And we try that and it doesn't get us very far. And we burn out. We don't only burn out ourselves, we burn relationships. We impact those around us. We, you know, you see the, the storyline, the trend. It's a train wreck of so many leaders who are divorced, whose marriage is broken down, kids are in trouble. Uh, you see the train wreck around you. And, you know, the dysfunction as an individual uh, is heartbreaking. And I realized I was becoming a train wreck, really was. <laughs> I, I could see uh, the trajectory that I was going in. And I was very fortunate uh, that I was invited to go on a retreat with a couple of really wise older leaders who I didn't like at first. I, in fact, resented them because they were asking me questions I really didn't want to answer. Now, I was gifted, had the leadership capacity, ability, potential. But I, I would say, Andrew, that a lot of people have potential and that potential fizzles out because they lack some of the fundamentals that every human being needs. Mm. And the first is leaders are disciplined. I learned that um, disciplined people have disciplined thoughts that lead to disciplined actions. Now, mm. I didn't make that up. I think it was Haifa that said it. Disciplined people have disciplined thoughts that lead to disciplined actions. So my rhythm has to be strongly on discipline. So, yeah, you, you, I know a lot of people joke, hey, you do run a lot. Well, I do. I never used to run a lot, uh, but I've realized that running helps me create discipline. So I, uh, it creates a discipline to rhythm of life. I, I don't believe any leader can ever find balance. I think when you try to search for balance, you're searching for this, uh, or you're pursuing this elusive goal of being a balanced leader and living a balanced life. I think what I try to find is a rhythm to life. And I think running is all about rhythm. It's the rhythm, it's the running, the gait of running and the motion of rhythm 
And I think I try to find my spiritual rhythm. So I run uh, anywhere to 8 to 10 miles each morning and getting up at 4.30. Um, I, I read four chapters of Scripture. I read God's Word each morning. I believe that reading the Word, uh, listening to what God is saying, uh, hearing His voice gives me a unique rhythm. And I pray a very crazy, simple prayer. I say, Lord, let me see what it is that you see. Let me hear what it is that you hear and give me the audacious courage to follow what you're saying and impress it upon my mind. And then I run. I run eight to ten miles and I process on that. I chew on it. I meditate on it. I de- dissect it in my head. And, and then I come back and the third rhythm I do is I journal. I journal every day. Uh, some of them are crazy thoughts. Some of them are solutions to challenges, issues that I'm going through life. And between 4.30 to 6.37 a.m. in the morning, that is an investment I make into me. Hmm. And I think that investment at the very beginning of each day actually helps me sustain the challenges of each day. I'm not going to battle without my full complementary of arms and weapons. I'm battling each day well prepared, well seasoned. And I think it's, you know, I, I heard this when um, Captain Sully, who flew that plane into the Hudson, such a great story. I mean, people asked him, you know, a, um, a water landing is just unheard of to, to be accomplished successfully. No one does a water landing and it ends up successful. The, the results are terrible. What prepared you for this? What training did you do for this? And people are asking me, you know what Captain Sully said, and he said it so powerfully. He says, every day when I take that plane off and I land it was a preparation for the time <laughs> when I'm in the midst of a crisis. And I think as a leader, the incremental preparation you put into your journey each and every day is what prepares you for the crisis. You can't prepare for the crisis when the crisis arrives. You've got to build the factors of discipline, of lifestyle, of rhythm into your daily walk so that when the crisis comes, you're ready for it. Because here's the reality. Storms of life come. No one is inoculated against them. They will arrive on your doorstep. As a leader, it's inevitable. But how you prepare before the storm is just as important as how you respond to the storms of life. Amen. That's sage advice. Thank you. All right. I want to, we've got just a few minutes left. I want to pivot our conversation a little bit and talk a little bit about um, leadership as it uh, relates to philanthropy. Okay. Okay. And I've been talking quite a lot lately about this concept of need, we our sector needing to find a better way to engage donors. And I, I think you and I probably uh, are philosophically fairly closely aligned on this perspective, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about um, what kind of advice and coaching do you give your um, your fundraising staff and your entire organization uh, related to this, uh, particularly around how do you build good relationships with donors? What, what does that look like for you? I think one of the biggest things is we've got to, see, we've got to stop seeing donors as the ATM machine. <laughs> you know, uh, this transactional relationship that we have with people never gets you anywhere. 
the biggest philosophy we have as an organization is about transformation. Transformation is a journey. It's a process. It's not transactional. And if you treat your donors and you think you're major, major donors, and here's what I'll learn about very wealthy, high-end donors. They're lonely people. Often mm. they're very isolated. Often they've got so many people that just want something from them that they've actually put such big walls around them that they're very skeptical about anyone that comes into their domain. So how do you be genuine and actually be a transformational individual in their life? How do you speak to their life in a way that isn't how everyone else is? And okay, I, I make no bones about it. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm truly 100% committed to follow Jesus Christ. I see people as Jesus would want me to see them. And I see them in that respect. And because we have that depth of spiritual engagement and relationship, people naturally trust you. Trust is your biggest currency, not just your story, not just your project you want to sell. Trust. When people trust you, they see you're willing to be vulnerable with them. They see you're willing to be transformational with them. Then I people, I see the natural result of that is the fruits that emerge. We want the fruit before we actually plant the tree and, and water it. We want the fruit before we actually grow the tree, before it's mature enough to actually produce something that is tangible. I mean, think about the irony of that. How often do you just go to a, a, a seed and say, give me fruit? I mean, anyone that says, you know, you'd laugh at it. You think, you know, you... You need to go and get some psychiatric care because what you're saying is ridiculous. But why do we do this in the philanthropic world? Why do we actually say to a, a, a tree that's not mature enough to produce fruit, why don't we say, give me some fruit because we're hungry. We need something to eat. We need to take this project. I think it is fundamentally as simple as that, Andrew. Uh, very well said. Yeah, no, no, very, very well said. All right, I, I think um, with as, as on point as that was, I think that's where we're going to leave this conversation. But I, I do want to ask you um, if our listeners want to engage with the Salvation Army, um, what's the best way for people to get involved? Oh, my goodness. Well, here's the thing. There are so many avenues to get involved with the Salvation Army. Uh, you can come in as a prayer warrior. You can come in as a volunteer. We love volunteers. We actually call ourselves the Volunteer Army because we want people to volunteer with us. Here's why. I'll make no bones about it because when you volunteer with us, we actually capture your heart. And when we <laughs> capture your heart, then we win the biggest battle we can ever win because then you want ownership. You become a stakeholder. You then start to invest not just your time, your energy, but your money. So, yeah, I, I want you. I want you. I want your heart. So come and give me your heart, I say to people. And and the way you can do it is you can – we have a volunteer hub is an organization we use. You can link – get the links. Andrew, we can put this link on your podcast so people can Perfect. say, you know what, uh, I want to get on board with the Salvation Army. And if I don't live in Orange County, there's a Salvation Army all across the United States right now. I would love to engage with you. And even if you're around the world, we're in 134 countries. We're actually just open in Iran and Iraq. Uh, we are wow. here in some places. Uh, the Salvation Army is in Turkey right now in Syria as that earthquake is breaking out. And we've got people right on the front line 
We're in the Ukraine. We're helping, and Russia. We're helping soldiers both in Ukraine and mm -hmm. Russia. So there are many ways you can engage with us, whether it's financially, spiritually, emotionally. Um, we would welcome all people of all faiths uh, and of awesome. all persuasions and political views. Okay. And if someone has listened to this and thought, wow, I want to get to know that guy, um, what's the easiest way for people to connect with you personally? Oh, well, listen, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, check me out on my LinkedIn profile. Um, send me a message. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on all the, all the social media handles. So I'd love for you to connect. We'd lo I love meeting new people. And uh, I'm curious by nature. So Sure, reach out. If you're a friend of Andrew's, you're a friend of mine. Vice versa, yes. Um, Major Keston, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you sharing your insights, um, and I'm just grateful to know you. Thanks again. Bless you. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks again for joining us today for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review so we can get our message out to more nonprofit leaders. And as always, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or at andrew at andrewolson.net. Be well, friends.